Folks, we're about ready to start. Thank you all. Uh, hope you all enjoyed your lunch. Thanks for joining us here at the second annual Texas Tribune Festival. Uh, we have a pretty interesting discussion ahead of us on uh, the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, and whether or not... I know how the committee works. Texas still, needs, Texas still needs it. Chairman Solomon is getting an early start over here. He's ready to go. Um, let me just uh, introduce the panel here. Um, to my immediate left is uh, State Representative Aaron Pena. This is his, uh, he's finishing up his fourth term, correct? Fifth? Excuse me, we got that wrong in the program, so disregard that. Um, the last uh, session, he served four terms as a Democrat the last session. He decided to uh, switch parties, and he stood by his decision, and he's very active in election and voting laws and legislation. It's something that's an issue that's very close to his heart. To his uh, left is Representative Bert Solomons. He chairs the redistricting committee. <clears throat> Unfortunately, he is also uh, moving on uh, out of the legislature, so the fact that Neither of these gentlemen are coming back. Hopefully, it'll mean that they'll open up a little bit more and you know be a <laughs> talk a little bit about this issue more openly. I hope so. Uh, to his left is Nina Perales. She is the uh, I want to get this right because another error. Vice President of Litigation for the Mexican American Legislative De Defense uh, and Educational Fund. Correct. <laughs> she uh, has worked on several issues, uh, represented Latino inter interveners in the defense of the Federal Voting Rights Act in 2009, and several redistricting cases that affect Texas and Arizona. And last but not least is Chad Dunn. He's a partner with Brazil and Dunn Attorneys at Law, and he's represented several challenges to the Texas voter ID law successfully, I might add. So if you give them all a big round of applause, and we'll, we'll get going. <laughs> and because this is such a, an open-ended, uh, I guess, question, I just want to ask the question, is the, uh, does, the vote, does Texas still need the uh, Voting Rights Act? And I'll give you all just a few minutes to say yes or no, uh, depending on how you feel about it. So, Chairman, or excuse me, Representative Penny, we'll start with you. Yeah, look, uh, prior to 1965, when the Voting Rights Act was passed, um, without a doubt, uh, for a person uh, uh, of color, a, a minority, a language minority, this was uh, this is not a country that that you could be um, satisfied with in terms of this issue. Uh, but you know, we've uh, we've moved forward and. Uh, the initially section five, which we'll be talking about, was a temporary provision. Uh, unlike section two, which is a permanent provision, section five was only supposed to last five years. Uh, in 1970, they, they gave it another five years. And then uh, I think uh, they may have given it another five years. And then they gave it seven years. And then they gave it 25 years. It's, it's due to expire um, in 2031. The question before us, and the question that Nina and some of the attorneys are going to have, is uh, the question of equal protection comes to play, which is protected in our Constitution, and is a place like, let me just pick a place, Philadelphia or, or New Jersey, any more less discriminatory than a state where we, the children and grandchildren of many of the victims that, where the law was initially passed to protect, uh, we're now a minority-majority state, and so is Section 5 relevant when Anglos, who are not protected by the Voting Rights Act, as I understand it, uh, where they are now the minority? And so that's the question that the courts are going to answer. Uh, so I do have my personal reservations on Section 5 and whether or not uh, it's constitutional. Um, but the Voting Rights Act has done great things for us. I, I remember prior to 19... 65, and it was a different world. Uh, we live in a greater world today. Chairman, your take? Um, well, your open-ended question is, is the, uh, does Texas need the Voting Rights Act? And I'd say um, in part yes, in part maybe not. 
and the Supreme Court's probably going to make a decision of whether or not Section 5 should be applicable to either all the states or none of the states any longer. I think Section 2 is obvious it's going to stay. You know, it's a significant piece of, of civil rights legislation. You had the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You had the Voting Rights Act. Um, it, it serves a purpose. The problem you run into, and I, I will say this, because uh, I see my old colleague Deborah Danberg and Sherry Greenberg and some other. You know, I never thought I'd be in the legislature this long, you know, but I've gone through three redistrictings. Uh, 2001, the, the congressional redistricting and the, this latest redistricting. And um, I think the Voting Rights Act serves a purpose. I think the, the redistricting process needs some drastic overhaul, but, you know, after having gone through it. But at the end of the day, uh, the Voting Rights Act itself serves a purpose, but I do think that there is some perception that with what I saw was, it, it seems to be, um, unless it's changed in some way with Section 5, I, I'm wondering why it should only apply, and that's what you hear from so many people, why it should just apply to just a few jurisdictions versus everyone, because we have such a greater burden of proof. Uh, Nina and Chad may disagree with me, but I think very much of it is political. Some of it is very subjective. The guidelines sometimes are clear, sometimes are not. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't do that poorly a job on the redistricting. They may disagree, but in fact, they did. <laughs> but at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we thought we were doing, we, we, I, we thought we were doing, we were being advised. We were, we were okay. We were taking guesses in some parts, and some parts, I guess, they were saying, no, it's pretty clear. But at the end, um, there is a sense that for a lot of folks, around uh, the applicable jurisdictions, including Texas, is that the Voting Rights Act um, is, is an important piece of legislation. You ought, to, you ought to tread very carefully before you change things or say it's unconstitutional or whatever, but, but at the end of the day, Section 5 does really seem to be uh, a problem area for, um, I think, academically as well as practically for people doing redistricting, much less some of the other issues that are, that are floating around out there. Thank you, and thank you very much to the Texas Tribune for inviting me to speak today. Uh, my position would be that yes, we still do need the Voting Rights Act in Texas, and I want to point out, just to add a little bit of uh, more information about it, that um, Texas was covered by at least Section 5, which we're talking about the preclearance provision in 1975, and it just means that when Texas makes a voting change, uh, it has to submit it to the federal government in Washington, D.C. Section, these provisions, the protections that we're talking about are incredibly narrow in the sense that almost every voting change that Texas passes gets approved. So sometimes people have the idea that the federal government is blocking every change that Texas wants to make to its elections, but it doesn't. The overwhelming vast majority of changes simply slide right through. I think where the Voting Rights Act in Section 5 becomes important is when something problematic comes up. If there is a, a potential question of discrimination, there's a way to stop the discriminatory act before it happens. It's not that hard to comply with the Voting Rights Act. Sometimes when I think about it, I'm surprised that Texas has drawn as many objections and as many court rulings as it has. But that's why we have the Voting Rights Act, is to serve as the net on the bottom to make sure that bad things don't happen. Well, my short answer is, of course, we need the Voting Rights sure. Act. 
but I'd like to explain it. In the recent opinion, the Northwest Austin opinion, Chief Justice Robert made, it, made a great argument and quote that got a lot of press, which is things have changed in the South. And, uh, you know, do we still need this law was the question. And they ultimately found a way to keep it, at least in that case. But I think the real material issue that we have to decide is, uh, and I agree with these gentlemen, if, if you think you need it, then you need to answer the question of when will we stop needing it? You know, do we need it forever? And I think, as, I think the answer to that question is as long as you have polarized voting uh, by racial lines, then you're going to need something like Section 5. Uh, and the problem you have in Texas that a lot of people don't understand is in other states you register by political party. And in Texas you don't do that. And so when, you know, politics is a blood sport on both sides. And everybody does what they can, what they can do to win. And one of the ways that you can target voters, whether it's in redistricting or it's in your campaign or it's in advertisements, is by race. Because unfortunately, race still is a pretty good indicator from a partisan perspective of where voters are. And hopefully that won't always be the case. And hopefully that will improve soon. But as long as that is the case, you're going to see people using race as a reason to target both in redistricting and, and, and campaigns. And, and I mean nothing uh, offensive to these gentlemen, uh, I, but I do think you get, you know, there's some people on the staff level that get overzealous in terms of causing political outcomes they want. We saw that in some of the emails exchanged. Uh, you know, is, is there any question that race has improved in the South? Not at all. And I think it's, it's a significantly or insignificantly small number of folks in the legislative process that are driven by racial hatred, which wasn't the case, obviously, in 1965. The results don't change. The, the impact on minority communities is just the same, whether you're motivated by racial hatred or whether you're motivated by politics. And that's why I think it's still needed. And I think once racial polarization in elections stops, which I hope one day occurs, then you can look at Section 5. Let me jump in and kind of add my personal experience with uh, the Voting Rights Act, just as a cautionary uh, tale to people in the audience and how the, the state has changed. I live in a community where 90% of the, the population is Hispanic. Um, and I was a Democrat for 30 years. I served in office for eight years as a Democrat, and then I made a decision to change parties. When I ran and was elected for all those years, I was what you all call a candidate of choice. But the moment that I sat in my hotel room in Arizona, wherever I was, and I said, you know, I'm gonna become a Republican, I was no longer a candidate of choice under the arguments that you all make to the court. And my district, which was, <clears throat> which was created for me, was the only people who were running are Hispanic, Everybody, almost everybody who lives in the community is Hispanic, and yet it was alleged that it was sort, some sort of racial gerrymander. I, I, the argument you know, that was made back home that was said in the papers about, well, this is discriminatory against Hispanics, we're all Hispanic. And yet the measure that was used against me was the Voting Rights Act. Um, simply because I made a decision in my head, things changed. I was no longer the candidate of choice, and you and I wanted to have this discussion a long time ago. <laughs> it was somebody's <laughs> argument. But, it, but it's insane for somebody to say, well, you're no longer protected because you're not the candidate of choice. I'm Hispanic. Everybody who ran who's, is Hispanic. They're going to elect a Hispanic. Why in the world that we live in today does a law that, that was passed in 1965 in a very polarized environment apply to my circumstances when we no longer have the polarized voting of that statute? That was my question. 
You, you said it wasn't, it wasn't your argument that it was, does that yeah. mean that there's a, a common area here that you guys can see, or? Well, no, what I was gonna say is that the Latino community, which benefited so greatly from the extension of the Voting Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act extended in 75 to portions of the Southwest, including Texas. And since that time, we've still been sort of marching to catch up in terms of participation and in, and in many ways in electoral politics. It is very important that we have the opportunity to elect our candidate of choice, which is not defined by political party uh, as far as most Latino advocates are concerned. Listen, Latinos struggled when Texas was a one-party state and it was dominated by Democrats. And so if you look at it from a purely Latino perspective, Latinos have had problems with obstacles to participation and election regardless of which political party has been in charge. It has more to do with polarized voting, with what kinds of candidates you prefer. And, and we still have polarized voting and not just in a partisan way. Even within primaries, you will see polarized voting between Anglos and Latinos. Both political parties, I think, have looked for advantages in the Voting Rights Act to, to push their own partisan agenda, whether that's Republican or Democrat. But I believe that there is and always will be a position that is just purely for Latinos being able to elect a candidate that they want, whether that person is a Democrat or a Republican. And I actually never took a position on whether or not you were a candidate of choice as a Republican because we don't know. Usually a candidate of choice is decided after an election, not before. And so you may very well have been the candidate of choice. The problem I think, and I of course did not weigh in on your district, I think one of the problems with the district that was created for you was that when you looked at it from an Anglo and Latino perspective and the demographics on the ground, there was a lot of cuts in the boundaries of the district that tended to put Anglos together as many as possible. Yeah. Uh, I wanna, it, that raises another issue. Because as it was argued across the state, it seems as though Hispanic or conservative Republicans were, were not the candidates of choice as defined by the people who were arguing the point, you had to be a Democrat, a Hispanic Democrat in order to be protected. I know you didn't take that position, but that's all I read in the paper and it, it offended me because there are, uh, as you know, uh, there are conservative Hispanics out there and in this community down in McAllen, Texas, uh, there are a large number of conservatives, it is still a conservative district, who wanted to have a voice and so the legislature wanted to create it and yet, whether it be myself or DeMargo or John Garza or Raul Torres, we all paid the price for being Hispanic conservatives. And the argument was made by Malk or whomever that because we were conservatives, we were not candidates of choice. Because a candidate of choice, as I understand it, and my limited understanding of it, has to come from a concentrated area of Hispanics. That's my understanding of it, as it was explained to me. But what is wrong with a, a candidate who can appeal to a wide uh, variety of people, whether they be Anglo, Hispanic, Asians, why do we prefer somebody who comes from a concentrated community as opposed to somebody who can appeal to all audiences? Because in effect what we're doing is we're creating polarized voting. We're creating districts that are very safe for Democrats and in turn what happens is you get very liberal Democrats coming out of those districts and there's no room for moderates. There's no room for conservatives. Uh, Republicans have picked up on this point, and that's why you no longer see Anglo Democrats, in my opinion. Okay, maybe I'm saying something out of turn, but you will not, uh, I don't know, I think we have one left, when we used to have many. Because the Voting Rights Act is, protects 
districts for protected minorities and Anglos are not protected, even though they're the numerical min min minority today. Well, I have three, three responses. On sure. the last point, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, we, we are in a situation, not just in Texas, but nationwide, where we've created an electoral system that elects only the distant sides of each party. I mean, you, you get the most conservative members of the U.S. House, you get the most liberal members of the, uh, of the U.S. House, and, and, you know, it's not surprising that group gets together and can't do much work. So I agree with you on that, and there are ways that, to fix that that my guess is we could, a lot of us here could agree on. But on the, on the Voting Rights Act portion of it, there are two things I sort of wanted to respond to uh, that you said, uh, uh, Representative, is I don't think that the Voting Rights Act talks about protecting individual members. It talks about protecting citizens. And I agree with you that if you have a district that is uh, performing for a Republican nominee, it's made up of Latino citizens, uh, majority Latino citizens, it's absolutely protected under the Voting Rights Act. And if I were involved in the case, I would do anything I can to protect that district. But as I recall the evidence on your district, they couldn't build a Latino district to support you in, in, as a Republican. Instead, what they had to do, and this was in the documents, was, was start with the Anglo community and then actually shop around block by block looking for Latino citizens who wouldn't turn out to vote, who had a low turnout to put in the district so they could get your population up high enough. And that, that was the argument that was, was made. And that's not exactly Latinos supporting a conservative Latino. That's Anglos with low performing Latinos supporting a Republican Latino. And that's why I think the district came under, came under fire. But I, but I do agree with you that the polarization is a problem. And in, and everybody bears responsibility for it. Democrats do it in other states, in, in Illinois and, and California, before it became a committee system. And that's an issue that's got to be looked at. Just, just for the record, I just want to say that the court found no legal flaw with the case. The Washington, D.C. court found no flaw with the district that was created in, in McAllen, Texas. Even and of course, the Texas court did find a flaw, so we have some. Well, I understand there. that. But, um, you know, we, we conservative minority members are concerned that we are not going to be allowed to flourish under, under the current interpretations of the law. Because although we reflect a large portion of the Hispanic population, we, we, we are seemingly, we have no advocates for us. Because the, the, the way we interpret the Voting Rights Act is, is, excludes us from existence. Chairman, do you want to add anything to this? Uh, well, in terms, you know, since I did the redistricting deal, you know, there, there's a different, I, I really, for example, I, I really disagree in part, it, it wasn't so much racist as it was political. It was just, you know, it, redistricting is inherently political. It's the most partisan thing legislatures do. Don't, wouldn't you agree? I mean, it, it really is. Now, you can talk about how you might want to structure uh, redistricting in a way that maybe it's not, you know, there's some control over that partisanship. But at the end of the day, I, I, I would say that, for example, um, when you're looking, you're not necessarily looking at race so much as you are who turns out the vote. It's political. It's not, it's not racial so much as perhaps the argument could be made that it's political, and the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, basically puts the burden, on pr burden of proof on the state and the legislature to show that somehow they didn't extend it too far. Now, you can argue whether that's still needed or not and to just a few states versus everybody, but because Hispanics, for example, who are all over. They're not just in Texas or in the nine states uh, that, are, that are subject to the Voting Rights Act. They're all over the country. So when you start looking at that, are you looking at the politics or race? 
I know that there's a fine, fine line at times, but so much of redistricting has it today, from what I could see, was not so much racial. It, in fact, I don't think it was racial in the Texas legislature. I disagree with the court, but it was political, and it was very political. It was the most partisan thing we do, and I didn't have one Democrat willing to vote for a bill. Um, I, 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 you know, we had 101 Republicans, and we asserted power. And partisanship being what it is in a redistricting process, that's what it was. I would say it wasn't so much racial. In fact, I didn't know, I, I, I've disagreed with the court about it being racial. You can talk about the effects of the partisanship maybe becoming racial, but it wasn't built on race. It was built on who votes, on, on partisanship, Republican and Democrat politics. Isn't that part of the process, even if it wasn't initially based on racial, that, that like you said, that was the, the outcome that was going to be the effect. Isn't that taken into consideration when the maps are being drawn? Well, it's very subjective, too, to, to some degree, in my opinion, on the, uh, with, with the Justice Department. And, and, and I think the arguments being made. I thought the other side had, actually had some good arguments. But on the other hand, you know, we had this burden of proof. Why should Texas just have a burden of proof? Whereas Indiana doesn't, you know, Nebraska doesn't. I mean, well, why should we have this burden of proof? Well, we do have a lot of Hispanics. We have a lot of minorities, very diverse state. But at the end of the day, it really is, it really seemed to be in the context of redistricting. I'm not talking about the Voting Rights Act. I'm not talking about anything else. I'm talking about redistricting. It was very, very political. And I think the court was uh, willing to look at your arguments that, well, it may have been political, but in some cases it looks a little suspicious. And so they decided that, that, that really for the benefit of the doubt, if nothing else, we're gonna, we're gonna say there were a few districts that probably could have been done the other way. But I think it was mostly political. And I think the Voting Rights Act, which we're here to talk about, in light, and the reason I guess I was asked to come was because of redistricting, was really in the context of was it right, you know, do we need the Voting Rights Act uh, for racial concerns or just to rein in partisanship. And the question is, uh, for, for why should not only a few states have that kind of burden of proof where the vast majority of the country doesn't? And so I don't know what's going to happen at the Supreme Court level with the Voting Rights Act, but I would probably suggest that there is becoming a time when they need to look at Section 5 and sort of maybe tune it somehow because I don't think it's really quite fair to what we did politically, what to what some other states, California and others, do politically. Um, I just, I think there's an issue to, to be, to academically be looked at and looked at by the courts. Doesn't mean that they ought to throw out the whole thing, but it does mean that there are some issues, especially in today's society. And you know and I know it's very partisan. We, it's, it's, it's as partisan as it's ever been just on almost anything anymore, it seems like. But, I, I, I do think the Voting Rights Act serves a purpose, but I do think what we went through that wasn't as clear. I mean, Nina, you know, I'm not an expert in it. You guys do more of it. But it seems like there's some things that are very clear. There's some things that are very subjective. And I think the partisanship and the political aspects of it, that brings into play. But why should the state have that kind of heavy burden of proof in every case and only in nine states versus the entire country? You want to speak to the burden of proof element? Well, sure. The burden of proof is because of the history. Um, and so one of the questions that will be before the court and that many people raise is, when is it time to say the history is behind us and we need to move on without the burden of proof? Um, I think this round of redistricting may have 
better proved the continuing utility of the Voting Rights Act than even past rounds. What I wanted to do is talk about one district in particular because I think it highlights a lot of the issues that we've been talking about, which is Congressional District 23, which is in Big West Texas. Mm -hmm. It goes from San Antonio all the way to El Paso County. It runs along the border. And it has been evolving as a Hispanic district over time and was um, just about Hispanic majority in the 2003 redistricting. The incumbent was a Latino. His challengers had always been Latino. So those races had always been brown on brown. Uh, the problem was that the incumbent, who was Latino, had been losing Latino support by the voters in each two years. Uh, his support had been probably at a high of about 25%, and it had been decreasing since then until the final election in which he barely held his seat. He ha only had 8% of Latino vote. And this is where I think you, know, you and I may have some common ground, which is if you're a conservative Hispanic, I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. If you're a conservative Hispanic, it's your job to get out there as a candidate and convince your Hispanic, uh, elect, you know, your electorate, vote for me because I share your values. Same thing with a Democrat, because frankly, I don't care whether somebody has an R or a D on their head. But what had happened for the incumbent was that he had been consistently losing Latino voter support. The solution, as far as the state of Texas was concerned, was to remove 120,000 Hispanics from the district and take it from 55% citizen voting age to 45% citizen voting age, which was, I think, the wrong way to try to get support for any kind of candidate, is to, to actually siphon out the voters that you think are a problem. Uh, that's not letting the voters choose. That's drawing the lines for the wrong reason. And we took that case to the Supreme Court and won. And the Supreme Court said, no, you have to, you have to put those people back. What we ended up having in the, in the next round of redistricting, which was our 2011 redistricting, was that changes again were made in the district and in a way, I think, to, to minimize the effect of Hispanic voters by swapping out active precincts and swapping in um, low turnout precincts. But active precincts versus low vote is not necessarily racial. The idea of Anglos and Hispanics or minorities, blacks, whatever, uh, that you can you can argue you might want to make a better argument that that looks a little more racial, but just the idea of who who votes and who doesn't vote, no matter what, and they're all Hispanic, mm -hmm. is not it's a political. It's not racial. It's just there. We got a better chance with whoever's in power has got a better chance. And I'm sure if the Democrats had 101 Democrats and we had had, you know, what we what Democrats had what was it 40. I'll concede Democrats yeah, yeah. don't have a good track record. Forty-nine. On the I mean, the idea that the, the, the <laughs> idea that idea. the idea in redistricting don't tell me politically that they would not have looked at voter precincts in light of Hispanic on Hispanic of which voting turnouts would help the Democrats. It wasn't racial. So it, you could say that race was used as a proxy, though, for politics, which I also would say would be wrong. Is if you're looking specifically at Hispanics which some of the emails suggested, not coming from the state, but some of the emails suggested that what, what was happening there was an intent to keep the Hispanic number the same, but to affect the activity level of Hispanic voters by taking out precincts. We, we have one man, one vote. We, you know, it's very, it is, you know, you don't get much margin. I mean, really don't get much margin. And when you look at precinct politically, I'm not saying we did the best job we needed to do on that district. But at the end of the day, it was it was really political. It wasn't it wasn't some it wasn't racial, and uh, I think that's the key. But I, I really do think, from talking in terms of the Voting Rights Act, I, th I think it does depend on whether or not it's fair to all the states to have some pro some process. 
I think with computers and technology, I don't understand why we don't have better computer models to put out there, if, you know, depending on the processing of uh, how you do redistricting, maybe you don't need the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, if you really went by computer models and, and had a process of appeal and a, a process where you could actually move through this. Uh, what I found, it was so litigious. I mean, litigation was just seeping out of the Capitol. I mean, with groups and everybody else, and Nina knows. I mean, it was just amazing, but it was all political. And you, you, you know, we're trying to interpret, and I don't believe that anybody in the background, although you can say there was somebody or this or that or whatever, based on an email or based on something, and the court seemed to thought that there were a couple of issues, but I don't believe that anybody was doing it racially, but I do think it was, it was it's, it's partisan. Redistricting is partisan. And you can't tell me if the tables weren't turned, it still wouldn't have been partisan. If I could change gears to voter ID real quick. Um, the, the decision that came down recently, uh, the, judge, the judges wrote in their opinion that had certain amendments been passed, it would have been made the, the decision a little bit more difficult. In retrospect, the, would you have talked to some of your colleagues, colleagues and uh, said, you know, tried to, to convince them to have, pass some of the amendments that were all, that were rejected to maybe ease it through a little bit? On the redistricting bill? On, on, on voter, voter ID? ID? Oh, voter ID? Oh, that's something else. Yeah, yeah look, <laughs> I mean, we, we don't, it, it, does, it isn't argued in a vacuum. We have uh, people there who have been sent there by the constituency to vote on something. Uh, something is proposed to us. Uh, leadership decides uh, the direction that things are going. You want to get things through. Things are hyper-partisan. Look, the bottom line with voter ID, uh, your organization, the Texas Tribune, along with the University of Texas, conducted a poll, and 70-plus uh, of all Americans, 76%, something like that, support voter ID. But there's several polls and they've stayed consistent. That's right. And amongst uh, African Americans, if I remember, it was 65%, and amongst uh, Hispanics, it was 64%. If you look at the recent poll done, well, not recent, I think it was in May by the Washington Post, the same numbers came out. If you look at the same polls in other states, the same numbers come out. So if you live in a representative democracy and people are demanding this, whether they're right or they're wrong, uh, and, the, and the issue is brought before you. you. The question is, well, okay, if I was sent here to vote on something and overwhelmingly my community wants it, and the United States Supreme Court has said it's constitutional in some form because it's been approved by the Justice Department and by the Supreme Court in other states in, in, in various forms, um, it, 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 is, it is, from my perspective, uh, you're not doing your responsibility as a representative of your community not to support it. Well, I'm glad you brought up photo ID because I wanted to talk about it and a number of other voting restrictions that came at the same time. Sure. I'll, I'll get to that first, uh, uh, but first I'll address Representative Pena's thoughts. You know, there's that great, I believe it was Cicero quote that uh, somebody said to him, you know, you're a man of the people when he was serving in the, in the, in the uh, Roman government. And he said, well, I'm not a man of the people, but I hope to be a man for the people. And that's how I look at democracy. There are times when representatives uh, do what's right. And I think in 1965, if you'd have polled Texans, do you support Jim Crow and separate but equal, you'd get a majority who supported it. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think you could poll uh, Texans today and say, do you think we ought to provide criminal defense uh, lawyers for defendants who can't afford it? And you'd probably get a majority who says, nah, forget it. Let's not, let's not do that. So there are certain civil liberties that we do uh, because they're the right thing to do. And that's why we have a Supreme Court who protects those rights. But what, what happened with the photo ID bill doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It, it, you have photo ID and then you have redistricting and then you have 
voter registration restrictions that now make it impossible in Texas to do an organized paid voter registration drive. I mean, it's now a crime for a high school student to stand up in his class and say, for everybody who's going to be 18 on election day, fill out these registration cards and I'll go mail them in for you. I mean, he's not committed a crime under state law. The, the, the Freedom Summer, you know, that they had in the South, uh, where folks all over the nation came to Mississippi and Alabama, registered voters to get African Americans in the process. All that's illegal now in Texas. Out-of-state people can't do registration. If I run a registration drive in downtown, uh, right here at the University of Texas or down in the business district, and I'm out there at lunch on a business day, and I accept an application from somebody in Hayes County or Williamson County, I've now committed a crime. These, all, all these laws passed at the same time. And in my view, you can, you can sit and, and sometimes you can justify just one of these decisions. Sometimes you can say, well, we've, we're concerned about voter fraud. There's no evidence of it, but we're concerned it might exist, so we need photo ID. But then you adopt the most restrictive photo ID bill in the nation. You reject every uh, amendment to the bill. For example, you, know, you could have had, at one point in time, a version of the bill allowed you to use your concealed handgun ID, but you couldn't use your student ID that the University of Texas issued. I mean, there's really only one justification for that distinction, and that's because you're trying to target, you're trying to tweak certain voters to allow them to have the franchise. Now, I, I admit, politics is a blood sport, and, there, and there's plenty of politics in redistricting. There's no doubt about that. But at some point, we ought to all stand together and say, we are Democrats in the sense that we all believe in democracy. And we're going to fight it out on our ideas. We're going to fight it out on convincing this public. But we're not, what we're not going to do is, is erect barriers, uh, put up a quiz in voter registration, and do everything we can uh, to sort of change the electorate. And I think one of the motivations, I'm not saying it's one of the motivations for these gentlemen here, but I think one of the motivations for those bills is that the demographics in Texas are changing. And so people are afraid of what result may come from that. And the way you stave that off is keep a voter roll from 1994. I mean, you're going to get 1994 election results if you have a 1994 voter registration roll, whatever the population in the state is. And so that's what I think is going on with photo ID. The court found that. And I think ultimately the courts are going to find that on these registration restrictions and, uh, you know, on the other restrictions that we've seen pass in the session. But so, some of those other uh, voter registration laws, those were pre-cleared, were they not? Yeah, they were. And, and you know, that's the point is uh, uh, they were pre-cleared from the standpoint of, uh, I'm going to give you an example, the dead voter purge we've okay. been reading about in the paper. You have a statute that sort of says, well, the Secretary of State is to compare the voter roll to as many federal databases as she can, do an investigation in terms of who is eligible, and then ask local county registrars to investigate it. And it gets bipartisan support, and not surprisingly, DOJ pre-clears it. But then on implementation, it's entirely different. It's an ad hoc database comparison, no investigation at all, and a mandatory directive down to counties, remove these people from the list. Well, do you think every state ought to have to pre-clear? Because that's the point of this conversation in some ways, is Voting Rights Act, and, it, and you see these kinds of statutes being passed all over the country. And some of them don't have to go through the Justice Department to be pre-cleared. I mean, you know, do we, should we always have to go through pre-clearance? I mean, perhaps not, but you know, I, I don't know that, I don't know that, uh, you know, it, it, I don't think there ought to be any hindrances to going to vote. I don't know a whole lot of people going out and stealing IDs to go vote, but at the end of the day, the polls seem to indicate, if you look around the country, that people think, well, in today's society, you know, you ought to, you ought to have a photo ID. Question was, did Texas go too far if a couple of amendments had been actually put on about student IDs and, and uh, a couple other things, maybe 
you know, preclearance, oh, we would have gotten preclearance. But the question is really, do we ha should we have had to go through preclearance when, and in, you know, and in Indiana they didn't, they just litigated, and the Supreme Court said in their case they were okay. So do, why should we always have to go through preclearance? And the question for this topic was, does Texas still need the Voting Rights Act? Well, apparently, you guys, th you know, there's a large number of people think, well, we need to do that. We need to preclear. We need to ask the federal government for permission to do anything where you can go do these things in other states, similar types of statutes, and there's a process by which they can decide those, whether or not they, they are hindering, under the Constitution, the right to vote. I don't know that we still need to do everything and have every little thing pre-cleared in the state of Texas. I think there ought to be an avenue by which you can take it up that there's a problem, but I don't, I, that's the point. In today's society, why should only a few states and a couple of jurisdictions, a few jurisdictions have to, oh, and because of history, back whenever, back in the 60s and Jim Crow days and prior to that, but in today's world, in, in, in America, even though it's very polarized and it's political, you know, we're in that cycle right now, do we have to get everything approved? Not just some things, everything approved having to do with this process. I mean, it just doesn't make, to, for a lot of folks, it just doesn't make any sense. I'm not saying you should just throw out the Voting Rights Act, but really, when you look at it, and some of the things that you even mentioned, they don't have to do that in other states, and they're doing it. And in this case, the uh, Fed's pre-cleared it, great. Well, why did we have to really go do that in the first place? I agree with the chairman that the original trigger for bringing Texas under, under the Voting Rights Act was uh, 40 years ago. Uh, it was the original trigger date. And, um, and we have made so much progress since then. And maybe if you just looked at the fact that the trigger was old and we've made so much progress, we could say Texas should be let out, except for every intervening event in which Texas you know, is found to be liable for discriminating against its minority voters. Even if we looked at the 2000s, we have a decision from the United States Supreme Court that what was, what was happening in the congressional redistricting bordered on a 14th Amendment violation, not just a violation of the impact standard, but coming right up against a violation of, of intent. So I think you got two out of three of the criteria flowing in your favor. But the third is the sort of consistent record. I mean, honestly, Texas, I'm so, I'm so sorry to say, is the worst but if of you all want, of the if states. If you want to litigate, go litigate. He'll be happy to litigate. Oh, and, <laughs> and you'll be happy to litigate. But go litigate. But why should in every case, the real <laughs> question is, in every case for everything, that, that just a, a few states anymore mm -hmm. and a few jurisdictions have to get everything pretty cleared with that burden of proof and with that process to go through it. Granted, like you said, the, the DLJ, oh, well, they just gave it to it. They, that was fine. You know, most of the, most of, most of the time they go through it. That's not the point. The point is, academically, are we at a point where we should not have to do everything with Section 5 and pre-clear things? There may be some reasons that maybe some things might need to be pre-cleared. But everything? That's the question. Well, what's, and how what's does the, the process genius? start to where somebody decides what needs to go and what doesn't need to go? Oh, everybody knows what needs to go. Oh, you mean to, to fix it? To, no, to to fix it. Well, I mean, he's saying, you know, maybe some things should, maybe some things well, should. I think, that, I think maybe we'll find out if the Supreme Court agrees that maybe not everything, if they, if they uphold the Voting Rights Act in Section 5, they may uphold it in its entirety, and they may decide, well, you know, in some things maybe you don't have to do it. They may lay out some guidelines. The problem I have with the court sometimes is every once in a while the courts are very clear. But other times it just it just worsens it. 
it just makes it even harder to try to figure out what we need to do to, quote, make it legal. And that was my problem in redistricting, is just, we, you know, I was being told things are legal. Well, okay, fine, but, you know, at the end of the day, apparently not everything was you know, held mustard well, in the we courts. But we were there. We I were know, telling you it wasn't legal. I know. During, we, we testified. But, that, that, but that's the problem of the, of, of, the, of, the, of the subjective nature of it, of what one, some folks were saying, hey, we think you're fine. And the other side saying, well, no, it's not fine. Well, fine, but why should we have to, in all cases, go through? Maybe in redistricting you do, maybe in some other things you do. But at the end of the day, maybe you don't have to do it. I mean, for example, the change of voting in my county, to change it from the school to a church or a church to a school where you go vote, yeah, it's probably going to get pretty clear. But why should we have to do that? Why, why should they have to do that if you want to change this location from, you know, down the street? Well, I'll answer that in a moment. First, I want to uh, volunteer to draft a letter you and I can sign and send to Congress asking that Section 5 be applied to the nation. I'd be happy to agree to that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I really, let me just tell you this, at the end of the, at, 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 truly speaking, it either should apply to everyone or not apply to any. I agree. Any. I think if it applied to the whole nation, they wouldn't be there but, and, because and, they wouldn't tolerate it. But here's the other piece that hasn't been discussed on this. And there's a, one of the things that came out in Northwest Austin is we have bailout now. So if you're a jurisdiction who performs well, it doesn't get an objection in a requisite number of years, which is 10 years, a certain number of years, that, and then you can apply to the court and get bailout. Lots of jurisdictions have done that, counties in New Hampshire and Virginia and all throughout the South. And, and so there is a procedure to get out of Section 5. You've got to do one thing, and that's behave. And, and as Ms. Perales points out, that's what Texas hasn't done such a great job at. But in terms of why do we have to... Behave uh, according to two, the, the, the DOJ attorneys at the time? Well... Or the history, is there, is there, a, is there a finite clear set of guidelines, you know, because I'm not an expert in the voting rights act. Clear set of guidelines, if you meet all these 10 things, you're automatically gone. Well, I think since bailout litigation is recent, those things are being resolved in the court, but I think there will be a clear set of guidelines, and clearly jurisdictions can meet it. But the other question you asked is, why do we have to, I think the example you said, well, I want to move voting from the church to the school or, or, or vice versa. And a lot of times that has no effect. But I can tell you in urban areas, it can have a huge effect. Uh, in terms of the amount of votes you're able to secure, especially when you have a church, you know, for example, in the Fifth Ward of Houston, where they voted there for 30 years. And now, all of a sudden, because the Republican candidate won for governor uh, in that county, they get to appoint the election uh, official, and they move the polling location down the street. And you can demonstrate in one election cycle that it dropped 25% turnout in the district. Those sort of things what matter. Down? What if and it burned down and you have to go? They're probably going to let you, you have to. They're you probably going to let you do it. But, but, and then voting went down. Somehow that makes it immediately evil. But see, and I'm not talking about conjecture here. These are things that happen all the time in Texas. I want to give the audience uh, the last 20 minutes sure. to ask some questions. So if you guys have a question, just line up behind the microphone, left and the right side, and we'll go in order. Any takers? Um, I just want to follow up on what uh, Representative Solomon was saying. Uh, given the recent history in Pennsylvania and Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania in particular, where a Republican leader actually said, hey, we've got this state for Romney because we've eliminated enough minority votes. Uh, the act should be extended to other states. Everywhere where the GOP is trying to uh, disenfranchised minority voters, uh, the act should be slapped on that state without any further consideration. Thank you, sir. Sir? 
Hi. Uh, I, a couple of times you guys mm -hmm. have made the, the point that uh, our politics are very binary, very polarized, and that really comes down to the type of system that we have for actually electing people and going through the primary process. And I just wonder, has anybody looked at alternative voting uh, schemes or electioneering schemes to try and mitigate the effect of redistricting? In other words, instead of just first past the post, things like fractional candidate rankings and things like that that would help um, give a plural of voices to the candidates that might be able to take office and, and not uh, follow along political or racial lines as, as you were talking about earlier? And if not, why not? And, and if you think that those are a good idea, how would we get started? Well, go ahead. Uh, you know, a lot of Western states are starting to adopt some of these new innovative election techniques and, and some of the data is just now coming in. But the studies I see in those is that even though it's a top 20 or take top five or fractional system as you suggest, you still end up with polarization of the voting. And as long as you have the First Amendment jurisprudence that we do, that political parties can exist, they're protected entities, and they may not be able to put people on the ballot, but they can advertise these are our candidates, as long as you're going to have that, I think you're going to see polarization, whether you do it on one of these new innovative systems or, or whether you keep the system Texas has. I, I'm frankly not at a point where I'm ready to state an opinion on the best way to do it, but I'm certainly willing to entertain that some changes need to be made in light of the polarization that it sounds like all of us up here uh, agree to. I, I do think you can well, go ahead if you wanted to. Well, I was going to say, we have settled cases for cumulative voting before when a jurisdiction doesn't want to go from at-large to single-member district, and they take that as kind of a compromised position. So we've done it. But I, I want to position myself as not being a, a part of the group of people who talk about partisan polarization because we're not interested in partisanship in any way. You know, we're behind the idea of creating opportunity districts for Latinos where the voice is not drowned out. Now, if you have a Latino opportunity district, it could be a Democratic district, it could be a Republican district. I think it's very much about what candidates are saying. I, you know, what is ideal for the Latino community is that candidates of both parties are knocking on our doors and saying, I've got the issues for you, I want you to vote for me. So uh, I guess our priority system places a greater value on creating opportunities for Latinos to, to speak out and to elect their candidate choice than remedying whatever other things are going on in terms of partisanship. I think if you go to an open primary system and you have, for redistricting anyway, and you have a, um, you, know, you can't tell me 10 years from now, we can't have a computer model that basically would pretty well adhere to whatever the rules are in place at that time, uh, probably subject to some appeal and litigation and whatever in particular instances around the country to make redistricting a little bit less, a little more forthright for the, pop, for, for, for the people in the state and for uh, the process of, of, of quickness and fairness in, in, in that, that you can't, you can't get a long way to not take totally politics out of it and partisanship, but you could, you certainly could get a better base floor on that. And 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 in light of, in light of, uh, you know, so many people hate incumbents and everything. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you really want to have turnover, you go to a open primary system and you go to a computer model redistricting system, you're going to see fast turnover every 10 years. Do you want to add anything? Uh, California is experimenting with. Uh, they're so partisan over there that. Uh, that they've gone to an open primary system and uh, a redistricting commission. However, if you read the stories that came out about the redistricting commission, the party still tried to game the system. Uh, and the argument was Democrats got control of it 
in a subversive manner. At least that's, really? the, that's what the argument was. And I guess that's what political parties do. But you're never going to take politics out of it. Well, that's why it's good to have a, a, you know, a legal system that, and, and fine lawyers that, that keep everything in check. One of the reasons I really didn't think the, the uh, commission idea is all that terribly good. It, it tends to work here, here and there in some places in some, some cycles. But it doesn't really stop any litigation. There really ought to be a, and I don't necessarily know that you want to stop litigation, but you don't want to make everything have to be so litigious. And the question is, if you have a commission system, you still need the computer model. You still need to be able to, to put it together so that it, and there would be some sort of uh, court process by which that takes place fairly quickly. And it doesn't seem to, it, 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 I would just think it'd be a better system all around. I can say this now since I'm not coming back, number one. And number two, <laughs> after you've done redistricting with little or no background in it, it seems to me, after what I went through, that um, I think we did a good job, as humans can do. I mean, we made mistakes. Well, apparently, some people think we made mistakes, and they happen to wear robes, and they're in the higher court. But at the end of the day, uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody in the Texas Senate or in the House, and I'm not speaking on behalf of everyone, but I am speaking on for a good number of folks, thought that those bills, when they went off the floors, weren't going to be changed in some form or fashion. And the question was, well, to change it, you almost have to show some sort of racial discrimination and not just fix it. And, and I think the process itself has, has, has some, some room for vast improvement. Uh, and then maybe you don't need uh, as much of the Voting Rights Act to, to, in, in the ways it's being used now. And I think the court is going to have to either decide on whether these few jurisdictions still have to be subject to it or there may be some, some uh, conditions by which that they don't have to uh, uh, prove everything, go through the DOJ to do it. Um, and be so subjective. Thank you, Chairman. Sir? Um, I think one thing we've seen pretty repeatedly is uh, how, partisan, uh, how the parties are divided pretty racially. And around 75% of Texas Latinos vote Democratic. And especially Chairman Solomon, you've especially said it that you're very open about the fact that you're doing partisan bias rather than racial bias. But when the parties themselves are so racially divided, is there any difference between the two? And especially when you see things like, when, especially when we have so many people voting straight tickets rather than voting for individual candidates, voting for the Democratic Party rather than voting, say, for Representative Pena, then isn't that a partisan and a racial thing that are the same thing rather than an individual decision? I'm just saying in all 50 states, redistricting, and I think Chad and Nina would agree, it, it's, it's, it's extremely partisan. And, and quite frankly, you got straight party voting. You got, you know, there's a variety of things you can do to improve the entire process. But just be, I think that's what the court was looking at and the arguments made by the plaintiffs were that because so many Hispanics and minorities were 75% Democrat, but just because they're of that race, part, you know, th that was the point. They were trying to say, well, maybe in some cases you didn't do what you needed to do and it has that effect. But it is a very part. I'm not saying it should be. I'm just saying it is. Mm -hmm. And I and I don't know really how to fix everything. But I do think there are some there are some things you could list off that if you could get any kind of agreement to do all or most of those things, you'd have a much a much better system around the country, much less in Texas, uh, in, in in how you got redistricting done. You're shaking your head. And using the Voting Rights Act for the states that are 
I just want to say that we were definitely not using the argument that if you damage a democratic district, you're damaging Latinos. Okay. I, I don't think that's a particularly no. strong argument under the Voting Rights Act. And I also know, everybody knows from personal experience, that Latinos are very flexible and that they can vote either way. I think what happens is if you start collapsing those categories, Anglo, Republican, Latino, Democrat, then you can get away with saying things are partisan when they might be racial and vice versa. So we, we always consider it a very high priority to detach those two concepts because I think it only leads to evil. You, you may have a completely different perspective on this. <laughs> Actually, so. I don't. And, and, and what I was going to say is, uh, was bringing attention to is, is, as I recall, Governor Bush got greater than 50% support uh, in one of his elections in Texas from, Lat from Latinos. More, closer to 40%. 40%, okay. But he, 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 as I recall, doubled or nearly doubled the support right. that Republicans had gotten. And it was impressive. And, and that's why I said to the representative earlier, uh, you know, if you have a Latino district that is performing for a Republican candidate, independent, a Green, a Libertarian, I'd be there supporting it if the, the legislature under Democrats, Republicans, or some other party tried to do uh, injustice to it. But where I, I, I think I absolutely agree with the chairman, uh, uh, maybe somewhat surprisingly, but uh, no, I, I think what we, uh, what we do agree on is there's got to be a better system. This system is terrible. And if you had a better system, you probably got to get to the point where you don't need a Voting Rights Act. The trouble is, like so many things, uh, you know, that there are problems with, uh, uh, you, nobody has the better system yet. Nobody's been able to put that together. And so when you strike down the Voting Rights Act without putting in place a better system that, that cures for a lot of the uh, uh, damage done to racial districts and the cut and thrust of redistricting, then you essentially just throw all the rules out the window and, and you have nothing. So until we come up with that better system, uh, and we adopt that better system, I think the Voting Rights Act as a minimum protection is, is something we absolutely have to have. Can I, can I raise a question sure. to the lawyers? Let me, let me ask the Aren't you an attorney also? Oh, yes, I, I, guess, I, I guess I am. Uh, let me speak for the, for the minority population. What are the Anglos going to do when this is a, a, a largely Hispanic state? Let's go 20 years into the future. Are we going to continue to just create Hispanic districts or African-American districts? And they're the only protected ones, even though they're the numerical minority? Are we going to continue to litigate this in favor of Hispanics and African Americans and not for the white minority population? We're going to continue we to have protected districts, in other words, 20 years from now, just for that purpose. You know, it just seems unfair, and it seems wrong. Uh, when we are now, we are, the, like I said, the children and the grandchildren of those original victims. And yet, the real people who are being victimized here are, as I see it, as I saw the Democratic Party lose its Anglo population, is all of us because Anglos are no longer protected. What are we gonna do in 20 years? Well, Same argument 20 years from now? Well, I think that Texas is on the cusp of becoming even more diverse than it is now. There is a point at which Latinos will become the numerical majority. I know there's a certain age cohort where Latinos may be the numerical majority. I think at some point the voting age majority and at some point the citizen and registered uh, majority. And it's my hope when I wake up every morning that we don't have polarized voting anymore. Because I think we're going to get to a place where people are voting for candidates not because of their race. We're not there right now. But we will get to that place. And that will be the time and the place when Texas will either bail out of the Voting Rights Act or Congress will decide not to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act or some court will find that it's no longer necessary. Any of those things would release Texas from the obligations. 
we'll, we'll get there. I mean, we're on the steady march. You know, from a day-to-day -day practical perspective as a, as a voting rights lawyer, there's not enough of, of me to go around. I've got three kids that I hardly ever see. And sometimes other lawyers come in, you know, if their clients want them to, and sometimes they don't, which is why the burden of proof is on the jurisdiction, because there aren't enough lawyers in private practice to carry out what needs to get done right now. But Sunday, yes. I hope everybody is voting for everybody. After my experience with voting rights lawyers and election lawyers, I think the technology, when we have the technology and the model that can produce the models as a base, there won't be nearly as a need for as many Voting Rights Act lawyers or voting rights lawyers because those models, I think technology is a saving grace of this with the Voting Rights Act as well as just the the sense of, for the population about feeling like they're in fair districts. And you're right, 20 years from now, it, it may not make much difference. But I think you're gonna have, a technology is gonna be the one way that you kind of create those districts. One man, one vote, less variances. Here it is, here's the base, unless you can show some other things in this process. This is what's going on appeal. We'll let the courts overlook it, make sure everything's fine. Then you've got it. You don't have to go through what we went through. I think there's room for vast improvement in that whole process. And because of that, I think the Voting Rights Act, we need some guidance from the courts. But I don't think, and I will tell you right now based on what I know, I think it's, it's, it is seemingly unfair that, like the gentleman said, I thought that was an asinine statement in, in Pennsylvania. But if you're going to have it for all, fine, or you have it for none. But, you gotta, but you're right, Chad, in that you need to have some other ways to make sure this comes out fairly. Folks, thanks a bunch. Big round of applause for our panel. Come on.